Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. We're here today with Yael Schoenbrunn talking about the specific challenges faced by working parents. If you have a teenager and you also have a job, it can seem like the deck is stacked against you. There's not enough time in the day to do everything you need to show up as an awesome parent and also kill it at work. It can start to feel overwhelming and we can start to feel really tired and beat down. But there is emerging evidence that it doesn't have to be this way. Studies show that work and family can actually enrich each other if we handle it in the right way. We're going to talk about the science of work-family enrichment. We'll look at how to clarify your work parenting values. We'll look at the power of working parent labels, and we'll see how to shift those to drive better outcomes for yourself and for your family. We'll see the three different ways people often think about their work and how to shift our mindset. We'll look at anger and how to listen to our anger and leverage it for better results in our family and in our jobs. And we'll talk about guilt, a feeling that often plagues parents of teenagers, especially if we're feeling pulled in all these different directions with work and family life. We'll see that guilt is natural and that it can actually be helpful. We don't need to avoid it. We just need to learn how to wisely make space for it. And throughout today's episode, we'll be talking about how to identify your values as a working parent and how to model those values in the best way for your teenager. Yael is a clinical psychologist specializing in treating relationships. She is the co-host for the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast, an assistant professor at Brown University and a parent of three. She is the author of the book Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. Yael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast and I'm really excited to chat with you today. Oh, I'm excited too. I (laughs) read through your book, which is called Work, Parent, Thrive. And I got to say, it is jam-packed. I love that you're holding the book in hand. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I love the physical copies, you know, and I kind of said, for some reason, I like to actually hold the book. I'm trying to train my teenager to love paper, but he's a little, you know, resistant. (laughs) So the topic of the book is really about how to juggle when you're parenting and also working. And to me, this is such a critical topic, especially as more and more people are working from home. And it's like, how do you kind of keep both of those things going? How do you have a career and find time and space to work on that, but also being, you know, present and there for your family is not easy. 
Not easy. Yeah, it's a tall order, but there's lots of ways to approach it. And hopefully I offer some a new framework, I think, because I do think that the dominant elements of this conversation, the modern conversation about working parenthood really emphasize how the two roles conflict. And, you know, I think parents of teenagers have a lot of challenge with this because in some ways your child needs you less and in some ways they need you a lot more. In fact, Mm. Anne-Marie Slaughter talks a lot about this in her writing that she actually drew back on her career when her kids were teenagers because the needs seemed greater than when the kids were younger. But the way that I think about it is from like a enhancement perspective that like rather than a scarcity model where we think that like if you're involved in one role that you're taking away from the other. I like to think about that two roles feed each other. And in fact, there's a lot of science to back this idea up. It is true that we have finite time and finite energy. And there's also a truth that there are ways that we can have our roles benefit each other more. And knowing the science of how to do that empowers us to do it more effectively. That sounds really positive. I think it's easy to get into that sort of mindset. Well, now we have less hours. We're trying to cram two things into the same amount of time. And how, wow, compared to someone who's just gets to focus on parenting or just gets to focus on work. Well, yeah, doing both at the same time. Doesn't that mean you're going to just, you're just always going to be frazzled and stretched thin and feel like you're stressed out and running around from one thing to the next and never have any free time, right? Totally. Yeah, that's often the way that we think about it. And again, like there's some truth to it, but there are other ways to think about it and approach it. And in fact, shifting your mindset really empowers you. And I'll say like I identify three distinct pathways that the two roles can enrich each other. So I'll sort of talk you through them. Because so the first path is this idea of skill transfer. So if you're parenting, right, if you're parenting a team, you're going to learn a lot of patience, a lot of perspective taking, a lot of willingness to tolerate, you know, grumpy people who are going through (laughs) a lot of developmental changes, a lot of criticism. And actually, like, those are really important interpersonal skills to kind of be able to roll with the punches, to have patience, to have compassion, even when it's hard to do so. And those skills feedback in very helpful ways to the workplace. Same goes for the workplace. Like you're often learning skills. You're learning are a podcaster. So you ask interesting questions. You deal with technology. Probably you have some guests that are difficult to talk to. And guess what? Those skills feed very well back into the parenting Mm -hmm. role. So in all sorts of ways, we can think about the roles, the skills that we develop in each role, right? As we're stepping away from one, we're not just taking away from it. We're also developing something that can later feed back in helpful ways. The second pathway is what I call the stress buffering effect. So this is the idea that when we have a stressful experience in one role, we can counterbalance it with positive experiences in the other. So, you know, teenagers can be hard. And so if you're having a tough time in your relationship with them, you can go to work and have a positive experience with your colleague. But teenagers can also be awesome. So if you're having a hard time at work, you can go do something fun with your awesome team because teens are so funny and interesting. And if you can Mm. counterbalance a tough day at work with a positive experience with your kid, that gives you an opportunity to manage the stress that you have that day more effectively. The final path is what I call the additive effect. So there's lots of different ways that psychologists define happiness, meaning experiences of pleasure. But the important way that I want to talk about is experiences of meaning and purpose. And in fact, what we know from psychological research is that meaning and purpose helps us to feel happiness 
in a more enduring way than experiences of pleasure. And so those that purpose, that sense of meaning is really important in a happy life well lived. And when we have more roles that we're involved in, we have a better opportunity to access meaning and purpose on any given day and certainly over the course of our life. And especially because, you know, as as you're parenting teens and they're kind of go, getting more independent, that can feel like your meaning and purpose as a parent is kind of walking away and pushing you away. Right. And if you have yeah. other roles where you can sort of sink into and say, well, I'm still doing things that matter a lot to me or to the community, then it can sort of, again, you know, give you access to this experience that may become less reliable as your teen grows up. Oh, yeah, that's so important, especially on those days where you're the worst parent in the world. And I can't believe this. And I never want to talk to you again. It really helps to have those other roles that can kind of uh, buffer us and give us meaning. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, you make it sound great. Yeah. <laughs> we should so all work in should go out so and, easy. Yeah, get another job. And uh, yeah. If you don't have one yet, have two. Great. Well, I will say that my byline is like, I'm not a natural optimist, but I'm a dedicated optimist. <laughs> so I work pretty hard to be positive, but there are realities like working parenthood in and of itself. Like that's hard stuff. Working is hard and you combine the two and it is hard. So I don't mean to suggest that it's all roses and sunshine, but there are ways to approach it that can work better, that w where we can be more successful, more effective, and that we can feel happier as we go through the journey. And I think, again, you know, psychology and social science really helps us to do that more effectively. One thing you talk about right in the beginning of the book that I really love, we talk a lot about values on the podcast and your values as a parent, and you get more specific about values as a working parent and how to clarify those. Can you walk me through that? What does that look like? And how do you recommend people start to gain clarity on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I practice an evidence-based treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, and it has six core processes, but one of them is values clarification. And let me first just define values. So values in acceptance and commitment therapy, maybe other people define them differently, but we define them as a quality of action, sort of a way that we want to show up in the world. And that's distinct from a goal, right? So if you think okay. about the metaphor, this is a common metaphor in acceptance and commitment therapy, but think about the metaphor of like climbing a mountain. So the destination, the goal is to get to the top of the mountain. Yeah. But values are a description of how you take the journey. So you can decide, I want to take the journey slowly and really enjoy the nature. Or you can say, I'd like to take the value in a way that's really good for my health and get my heart rate up. You can take the value with a friend and you can be silent with them, or you can take the value and like, you can take the journey with a friend and be chatting the whole time and connecting verbally. So values describe how you take the journey. Now values are also context dependent. So they shift if things around you shift. So for or inside of you for that matter. Mm. So if a storm comes up all of a sudden and you had been trying to get a workout and like really pushing yourself to get up the mountain, you might shift your value to getting a good workout from getting a good workout to self-protection and find yeah, shelter yeah, or turn, turn and get, <laughs> yeah, turn back yeah. down the mountain. So values are really important and they help decide how we want to move through the thornier patches of life. And certainly parenthood and working parenthood has lots of thorny patches. And so you don't get to choose the weather, but you can choose what value you are 
connecting to guide how you respond to the weather, the metaphorical weather. I walk people through a variety of exercises to clarify values in my therapy office. I see patients in my therapy office and also in the book. And there's lots of ways that you can do it. But one of my favorite ones is to think forward 30 years and imagine your older self looking back on your current self and ask yourself, what qualities of actions, what ways of being would make you most proud? So for example, if your teenager is calling you the worst parent in the world, like what would make you most proud in how you respond to your teen in that moment? So it might be like calm and compassionate, or it might be like firm and boundaried. And there's not really a wrong value. It's really about what you want to embody in that moment. And clarifying that helps to give you a compass for your behavior that is different than your emotions might guide, right? Because if your teenager is telling you you suck, <laughs> your emotions might be defensiveness or anger, right? And that would lead to a defensive or angry action, which you might then feel ashamed of because it doesn't represent how you most want to show up in the world. Whereas allowing your values to guide, it means not acting on your emotions and instead acting in this different way, which can be uncomfortable, but it's so empowering to say, okay, like I was feeling super angry, but I stayed calm and firm and didn't get activated or sort of, you know, triggered in this moment. And that's something that I can be proud of. Again, it's not comfortable, but it's sort of like how you most want to show up in that moment. Does that make mm. sense? Oh, yeah. And I love that kind of projecting into the future and looking back, it seems to like add so much clarity because in the moment when you're feeling emotional and you're just kind of reacting, it's like, well, it's just kind of whatever comes out and whatever happens. But if you're really, once you've calmed down and gained some perspective and you're looking back on something, it seems like, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm. It feels like that kind of exercise really helps you to, to get clarity. And then when you do come in those situations, if you've thought through it like that, yeah, yeah, it gives you like sort of something to grab onto or to anchor yourself a little bit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a compass that you can use in the storm, right? Where you can't see very clearly. And exactly as you're saying, it's very helpful to think it through at a different time when you're not emotionally activated, when you're not right in the middle of the storm. Right. And then have some clarity on the value and maybe also like a mantra that can that you can sort of latch on to, right? Ooh. Because there's so much chaos. So like you can think to yourself like calm and assertive or boundary or, you know, firm, like, you know, a word that can kind of cue you like this is the value and I'm going to allow that to help me determine my behavior, my choices and behavior in that moment. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And that just like lets you kind of keep reminding yourself about how you want to show up. You talked about the three paths and I really liked this idea of enrichment and how work and family can enrich each other. And you have some ideas in here about how we can get better at recognizing those things and I guess questions we can ask ourselves, kind of reflections we can do, maybe journaling or just thinking or talking with other parents or with partners. How can we get some more clarity on looking for those pieces of enrichment. I think of it also like kind of how gratitude and how when we just start looking for things to be grateful for, we can find them. And so this really struck me as like you were talking about shifting our mindset that, you know, if we start kind of getting conscious about looking for places where our, our, our work and our family life are actually enriching each other, then I don't know, then, then we'll just start to kind of notice those more, focus on those more. How do we do that? Yeah. 
Well, I love that you're bringing up the analogy of the gratitude exercise. There's so much research on gratitude exercises that when we sort of actively look for things to be grateful for, it makes it much more apparent all the things that we can be grateful for. And what we know about the brain is that we're negatively biased. We're like more tuned in to negative cues. And there is good evolutionary reasons for that, right? Like sure, it's yeah. much more important to keep yourself safe from the saber-toothed tiger than to like enjoy your banana, right? So that's a silly example, but um, mm. it makes sense that we're more tuned into negative cues and that our memory is going to call up the negative things much more easily. And so in order to counteract that, that brain wiring that we have that was really adaptive in pre-modern times, we can get very proactive about looking for the positive. So it can work with gratitude exercises. It can also work with work family enrichment. So you can ask, actively ask yourself, in what ways did my work help me parent? And write those down, right? You can write them down like a gratitude exercise on a daily basis, or you could just like keep them in a journal and, that when, and then when tough times arise, you can look back on that page that has the the evidence of the ways that your work helped your parenting and same goes, you know, how did my parenting help my work? And how did the two of them help me to have a richer, more interesting life is sort of like tapping into that additive effect. One thing that I'll just take note of is that I did a, many dozens of interviews for this book, and I wasn't actively seeking to have interviews be any kind of an intervention. I was really just curious to ask people who were working parents, like, you know, in what ways do you see these roles feeding each other in positive ways? And because I was actively looking for it, very few people have been asked this question. Uh -huh, it, it ended up, yeah, it ended up being this mini intervention where mm. people would be like, I had never yeah, thought no. about that they really do help each other. Like my work really does make me parent better. My parenting really does help me to work more strategically. That's so cool. And a number of times, like like weeks later, people would contact me and say, you know, it really stuck with me. Like it's kind of changed the framework that I have. And so my overarching goal for this book is that it helps people shift their mindset from like a strictly work family conflict mindset to a work family enrichment mindset where they're just more tuned in and aware of the benefits uh, that roles can give offer each other. And that like the gratitude exercise, it becomes this kind of like active practice where you're just really noticing all, all the ways that enrichment happens that were sort of outside of your conscious awareness before and then you get to enjoy it, which is really lovely. I think that's really profound. And in so many ways, you know, you find more of what you're looking for. And if we're looking for ways that that these two parts of our lives really feed each other and enrich each other, we'll find them. Whereas if we're constantly looking for ways that they conflict and <laughs> cause stress, then you know, we'll find those too. So it's really cool. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, and I think there's actually interesting ways that like both are true at the same time. So like, for example, like, sure you know, if you get interrupted by your kid while you're working, that's frustrating because you they interrupted your workflow and, yeah, um, right. you know, that that's a bummer for your work. And at the same time, what we know from research on interruptions, like that interruption actually offers an opportunity to refresh your work battery and to have an opportunity to have creative, your creative sort of outside of conscious awareness processes get into action and help mm. your work. And we also know from happiness research that interruptions help us enjoy pleasurable experiences for longer. So if you're like, 
I don't know, eating cookies with your kids and then you got to go into work. Like the next time you eat cookies, you'll enjoy it more than if you had like sat there and eaten cookies for, you know, two hours at a, oh, you know, without interesting. pause. <laughs> There's all these kind of clever ways that we can actually add, sort of do a both and. Like this is hard and it has benefit and it makes handlings, sort of tolerating the hard part a little easier and it makes accessing the gifts a little more possible and we can even learn to amplify those gifts and so that's again what i'm trying to teach people with this book wow i like that yeah those are wow sound really good we should tell our boss to feel free to uh, call us at home and interrupt our cookie eating anytime no really, it's good it helps me that's yeah well this it's like a funny thing some of the research is done on television watching that like when there are commercial interruptions it actually sustains your enjoyment like it doesn't feel like it but because it resets your happiness uh, point commercials actually help you to enjoy so like binging you know doing a netflix binge where you watch like the entire season in one night like you feel kind of crummy and like you don't love the last episode um, as much as you love the first one so it, it's sort of interesting like it's useful to interrupt your own pleasure <laughs> and like take opportunities for your two roles to interrupt each other and like really appreciate the heck out of it because it, it offers a benefit yeah, it's like sometimes it needs to save us from ourselves a little bit like, totally uh, <laughs> totally yeah otherwise those binges are hard to they're hard to interrupt ourselves <laughs> well the next episode just starts playing automatically i know they make okay. it so they make it hard not to interrupt <laughs> and the next cookie is just right there looks so soft and delicious You also talk in the book about labels and noticing the labels that we're putting on on ourselves or on our relationship between work and parenting. And I think labels are so profound in, in so many ways. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about labels that we might put on our teenager, you know, watching out for that. But you make a really interesting case in here for looking at labels in terms of our working parenthood. What do those look like? And how do we start to identify them and maybe, you know, switch to more helpful or empowering labels? Yeah. I love that you talk about attaching labels to teens. I mean, teens really do get a bad rap. <laughs> like they're right. What child isn't doesn't have some challenge with them, but teens are so interesting and fun. And like, I don't know, they're just growing into their own little people. And if we can, yeah. so here's the issue with labels. Let me sort of pause myself on my diatribe about the awesomeness of teams. I guess not diatribe, but my excitement about teams yeah. and say that what happens with labels is that they can be very rigid. And so when you think about like the fixed mindset labels versus the growth mindset labels, fixed mindset labels tend to be like very narrow black and white kinds of labels. So like teens are always difficult or working parenthood is always impossible or working parents can never have it all or working parents are always going to be falling short. So like these kind of labels are short phrases that suggest that things just are the way they are and they can't change their fixed. Mm -hmm. and, and our mind tends to fuse to them. So we start to believe that it's true. And the more that we say it, the more true we believe it to be. And this is why working with our labels is so helpful because sometimes we don't even notice that we're labeling. It's like breathing in air. We're not like paying attention and we're just doing it and we're doing it sort of without conscious awareness. This is where meditation comes in and where meditative-like practices around our mind's activity can be really helpful because we can begin to notice like, oh, we're breathing. Oh, we're labeling. Mm -hmm. And once we notice, once we say, oh, I'm having the thought that 
my teen is impossible or that working parenthood is miserable, I can make a choice like how and I can ask myself, like, how helpful is that label in connecting me the kind of person that I want to be in helping me to build the kind of life that I want to build, right? And then we get into values. And the and we can ask ourselves, is it interfering with me living in line with my values? So for example, when I think to myself, my teen is impossible, how does that impact how I show up as a parent? When I think to myself, working parenthood is the worst, right. how does that impact how I show up to my two roles? And so what I suggest is you know, when you notice those black and white rigid kinds of labels, to begin to do this practice that acceptance and commitment therapy calls diffusion, it's like unhooking. It can be as simple as saying, I'm having the thought that, or I'm labeling myself as, Mm. or I'm looking at my teen and calling him or her, whatever the label is. And sort of simple prefix, I'm having the thought or I'm labeling with mm-hmm. can help you create just a tiny bit of distance, right? It helps you notice my mind is creating this, these words, and right. I can buy into them and it has an impact or I can turn to a different direction and that can have an impact. What do I want to do here? And so, you know, when you notice those really rigid black and white labels, it can be very helpful to start to generate alternatives that you can turn towards that are more uh, enrichment oriented, work family enrichment oriented. So things like, you know, my teen is a very interesting person with pros and cons and challenges and delights or working parenthood is hard at times and also offers a whole host of gifts and intrigue and variety that can be really enriching or, you know, rather than this is impossible, like this is hard and challenging. I'm going to rise to the occasion kind of a thing. So like words or phrases that are a little bit more workable that don't get you stuck when you notice that labels or phrases are getting you stuck, right? You don't have to work with everything. (laughs) Like if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. The issue is like if you're finding yourself routinely dropping into these very rigid labels that are interfering with showing up in line with your values, that's when you want to start to do this kind of work. We're here today with Yael Schoenbrun talking about how to handle the unique challenges faced by working parents. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. We get tripped up, we get triggered into anger. And what happens when we get angry is like literally our vision narrows and we get into this very self-protective offensive stance. And that is adaptive from an evolutionary perspective. Like if you were in danger in pre-modern times, it was good to like grow big and like act quickly, right? That was going to save your life. With your teenager in this modern world that we live in, it is not self-protective at all. And in fact, it can be very damaging for the relationship. It doesn't mean that the anger is wrong, right? This is such a psychologist thing to say, but it is so true. Like there's no wrong emotion and we should be teaching our kids that. But there are more and less helpful ways to respond to the feelings that come up in us. Some of my most powerful parenting moments are when I've totally screwed it up. And I've said to my kids, like, oops, like, mommy screwed that up pretty badly. I'm sorry. Like, I own it. Like, I think apologizing is really important. That's something I really value is, like, taking responsibility and repairing and learning and growing. Like, all of those are values. So I'll say to them, you know, I screwed up. I'm really sorry. I'm trying to learn how to do this thing. 
I haven't yet figured it out, but I'm figuring it out. I'm going to try this thing next time. And then we'll talk about it. Hey, I think I did better. What did you think? Like, I'll almost like invite them to give me feedback. Christopher Wren, who was an architect who rebuilt the St. Paul Cathedral in London after the Great Fire of 1666. This is the story. He approached three different bricklayers and asked them what they thought they were doing. And one said he was laying bricks to feed his family. So it's a job. The second said he was a builder and was thus building a wall, right? A career. The third, who was the most productive, said he was building a sacred structure for the almighty. So that's the calling. And what research has shown is that regardless of your job, regardless of the job, like it could be like they've done research on with administrators, with custodians, with hairdressers, with, you know, lawyers, with doctors, in most different kinds of jobs, people think about their jobs in these different ways. And like, it might be hard to think like, how does a hospital custodian see their career as a calling? But there are ways, right? People might think like, I'm creating a more positive experience for a patient who is really suffering. And if I can make their space clean and smile and connect with them, like I am making a big difference in the world. And we can do this in almost any job. I say almost because it's right. There are some jobs that are really toxic where this is virtually impossible. So I don't, we need to beat ourselves up if we can't do this. But the closer that we can get to seeing the value of what we do, the more we enjoy our work, the more we're productive, therefore, the more success we're going to have. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.